0: listeners and readers thank you so much for joining me today or tonight or this morning wherever you might be and whenever you might be listening Uh, I just wanted to apologize because I have not recorded in some time uh, so we've had a bit of a lapse between chapters six and we are now moving into chapter seven But I hope to be back to recording more regularly anyway, and I sure hope that you are all keeping well and safe and healthy. All right, let's get into Chapter 7 of A Lost Lady by Willa Cather. Chapter 7. On the evenings when there was no whist at the foresters, Neil usually sat in his room and read, but not law as he was supposed to do. The winter before, when the foresters were away, and one dull day dragged after another, he had come upon a copious diversion, an almost inexhaustible resource. The high, narrow bookcase in the back office, between the double doors and the wall, was filled from top to bottom with rows of solemn-looking volumes, bound in dark cloth, which were kept apart from the law library, an almost complete set of the Bone Classics, which Judge Pomeroy had bought long ago when he was a student at the University of Virginia. He had brought them west with him, not because he read them a great deal, but because, in his day, a gentleman had such books in his library, just as he had claret in his cellar. Among them was a set of Byron in three volumes, and last winter, apropos of a quotation that Neil didn't recognize, his uncle advised him to read Byron, all except Don Juan. That, the judge remarked with a deep smile, he could save until later. Neil of course began with Don Juan, then he read Tom Jones and Wilhelm Meister, and raced on until he came to Montaigne, and a complete translation of Ovid. He hadn't finished yet with these last, always went back to them after other experiments, these authors seemed to, to him to know their business. Even in Don Juan, there was a little fooling, but with these gentlemen, none. There were philosophical works in the collection, but he did no more than open and glance at them. He had no curiosity about what men had thought, but about what they had felt and lived he had a great deal. If anyone had told him that these were classics and represented the wisdom of the ages, he would doubtless have left them alone. But ever since he had first found them for himself, he had been living a double life, with all its guilty enjoyments. He read the Heroides over and over, and felt that they were the most glowing love stories ever told. He did not think of these books as something invented to beguile the idle hour, but as living creatures, caught in the very behavior of living, surprised behind their misleading severity of form and phrase. He was eavesdropping upon the past being let into the great world that had plunged and glittered and sumptuously sinned long before little western towns were dreamed of. Those rapt evenings beside the lamp gave him a long perspective, influenced his conception of the people around him, made him know just what he wished his own relations with these people to be. For some reason, His reading made him wish to become an architect. If the judge had left his bone library behind him in Kentucky, his nephew's life might have turned out differently. Spring came at last, and the Forester place had never been so lovely. The captain spent long, happy days among his flowering shrubs, and his wife used to say to visitors, Yes, you can see Mr. Forrester in a moment. I will send the English gardener to call him. Early in June, when the captain's roses were just coming on, his pleasant labors were interrupted. One morning, an alarming telegram reached him. He cut it open with his garden shears, came into the house, and asked his wife to telephone for Judge Pomeroy. A savings bank, one in which he was largely invested, had failed in Denver. That evening, the captain and his lawyer went west on the express. The judge, when he was giving Neil final instructions about the office business, told him he was afraid the captain was bound to lose a good deal of money. Mrs. Forrester seemed unaware of any danger. She went to the station to see her husband off, spoke of his errand merely as a business trip. Neil, however, felt a foreboding gloom. He dreaded poverty for her. She was one of the people who ought always to have money. Any retrenchment of their generous way of living would be a hardship for her, would be unfitting. She would not be herself in straitened circumstances. Neil took his meals at the town hotel. On the third day after Captain Forrester's departure, he was annoyed to find Frank Ellinger's name on the hotel register. Ellinger did not appear at supper, which meant, of course, that he was dining with Mrs. Forrester and that the lady herself would get his dinner. She had taken the occasion of the captain's absence to let Bohemian Mary go to visit her mother on the farm for a week. Neil thought it very bad taste in Ellinger to come to Sweetwater when Captain Forrester was away. He must know that it would stir up the gossips. Neil had meant to call on Mrs. Forrester that evening, but now he went back to the office instead. He read late, and after he went to bed, He slept lightly. He was awakened before dawn by the puffing of the switch engine down at the roundhouse. He tried to muffle his ears in the sheet and go to sleep again, but the sound of escaping steam for some reason excited him. He could not shut out the feeling that it was summer and that the dawn would soon be flaming gloriously over the forester's marsh he had awakened with that intense blissful realization of summer which sometimes comes to children in their beds he rose and dressed quickly he would get over to the hill before frank ellinger could intrude his unwelcome presence while he was still asleep in the best bedroom of the wimbledon hotel An impulse of the affection and guardianship drew Neil up the poplar-bordered road in the early light, though he did not go near the house itself, but at the second bridge cut round through the meadow and onto the marsh. The sky was burning with the soft pink and silver of a cloudless summer dawn. The heavy bowed grasses slashed him to the knees, splashed him to the knees, All over the marsh, snow on the mountain, globbed with dew, made cool sheets of silver, and the swamp milkweed spread its flat, raspberry-colored clusters. There was an almost religious purity about the fresh morning air, the tender sky, the grass and flowers with the sheen of early dew upon them. There was in all living things something limpid and joyous, like the wet morning call of the birds, flying up through the unstained atmosphere. Out of the saffron east, a thin, yellow, wine-like sunshine began to gild the fragrant meadows and the glistening tops of the grove. Neil wondered why he did not often come over like this, to see the day before men and their activities had spoiled it, while the morning was still unsullied, like a gift handed down from the heroic ages. Under the bluffs that overhung the marsh, he came upon thickets of wild roses with flaming buds just beginning to open. Where they had opened, their petals were stained with that burning rose color which is always gone by noon, a dye made of sunlight and morning and moisture so intense that it cannot possibly last, must fade like ecstasy. Neil took out his knife and began to cut the stiff stems, crowded with red thorns. He would make a bouquet for a lovely lady, a bouquet gathered off the cheeks of morning, these roses, only half awake, in the defenselessness of utter beauty, He would leave them just outside one of the French windows of her bedroom. When she opened her shutters to let in the light, she would find them, and they would perhaps give her a sudden distaste for coarse worldlings like Frank Ellinger. After tying his flowers with a twist of meadow grass, he went up the hill through the grove and softly round the still house to the north side of Miss Forrester's own room where the door-like green shutters were closed. As he bent to place the flowers on the sill, he heard from within a woman's soft laughter, impatient, indulgent, teasing, eager. Then another laugh, very different, a man and it was fat and lazy, ended in something like a yawn. Neil found himself at the foot of the hill on the wooden bridge, his face hot, his temples beating, his eyes blind with anger. In his hand, he still carried the prickly bunch of wild roses. He threw them over the wire fence into a mud hole the cattle had trampled under the bank of the creek. He did not know whether he had left the house by the driveway or had come down through the shrubbery. In that instant, between stooping to the windowsill and rising, he had lost one of the most beautiful things in his life. Before the dew dried, the morning had been wrecked for him, and all subsequent mornings, he told himself bitterly, this day saw the end Of that admiration and loyalty that had been like a bloom on his existence. He could never recapture it. It was gone, like the morning freshness of the flowers. Lilies that fester, he muttered. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Grace, variety, The lovely voice, the sparkle of fun and fancy in those dark eyes. All this was nothing. It was not a moral scruple, she had outraged, but an aesthetic ideal. Beautiful women, whose beauty meant more than it said. Was their brilliancy always fed by something coarse and concealed? Was that their secret?